Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Topoka Makondawire, who is completing her PhD at the Sanger Institute here in Cambridge, UK. I've known Topoka for a few years now because I did my PhD there as well. Um, and she studies something that we've not covered yet at all in the podcast, which is parasites or parasitology, as the field is called, and um, their relationship to us as humans and the human gut. So as a category, Topoka studies what are called neglected tropical diseases, but it's whipworms that you study most specifically. Is that right, Topoka? Welcome to the podcast. Yes, uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, just to get started, if you could kind of tell us about how you got into the science of neglected tropical diseases, what whipworms are, how, how many people are affected by it, and, and what it is that you do within the field. Yeah, um, so whipworms, or their scientific name, Trichiris, currently infect around 400 million people um, in the tropics and subtropical regions. But this is actually a decrease from previous years, where it's been up to about 700 million and even a billion people um, infected with them. So we're doing some good work in that area. I got into studying them because I'm a molecular biologist by trade and then have previously done some work looking at gut bacteria and then was asked by some people studying different types of parasites if I would like to join them and study how this parasite interacts with gut bacteria. 400 million people. That's uh, an incredible number. That must be, I mean, that's more than most cancers, probably on par with um, things like heart disease and and obesity is is it challenging for you from a scientific perspective to study something that affects so many people but is is not common here in the UK where you know where you're doing your research or funding or is there is there a general understanding that this is a, a problem to be solved no i think most people kind of have never heard of these parasites or considered yeah. um that these are things that infect people and it's kind of really an eye-opener when you explain that there's this whole other world of infections that just don't get as much traction or publicity um, as some of the other diseases. And then this is why they are called these neglected tropical diseases, because they're understudied and underfunded. You mentioned that it's down from 700 million or, or a billion from maybe five, 10 years ago. What is it that's been working? So the disease is very heavily linked to water, sanitation and hygiene, so WASH. And then also there have been lots of deworming campaigns um, over the past few years. So whipworm was traditionally a disease found across the globe, and you can still find it in European countries and like certain parts of America. But as technology has advanced and there's been better access to clean water, incidence of these diseases has gone down. So in effect, it should also only be a matter of time uh, for some of these other nations. But in the meantime, we'll study them to do what we can to help along the way. What does whipworm actually do to humans and, and how do we actually get it? So you get it from contaminated food and water sources. So the eggs are super resilient and can live in the soil or in water for many, many years. And then someone will come along and drink contaminated water or eat like unwashed fruit and veg. And then these eggs get into the body. They go into the intestine and then they hatch out of the eggs and burrow into the intestinal lining. 
And then the worms essentially stay there, they mature, they reproduce, and the female worms lay eggs, which then go into the feces and back into the environment that way. So it's what we call the fecal oral route of transmission. Where in that circle of life do you study? Do you study what they do once they're in the gut or other parts of the life cycle? So it's that very early stage. When they get into the gut, what signals do the eggs encounter that tell them that this is a safe space for the worms to hatch and allow that interaction to happen is what I'm really interested in. What have you all found over the last uh, couple of years, maybe you personally or the group, what's the current understanding of what happens? And, And I suppose it has some bearing on the types of treatments that you can apply to discourage them from finding a home in the intestines or to detect when there is an infection, kind of aside from some of the public health approaches. Is that right? Yes. So um, we are interested in looking at whipworms in three different species. So mice, pigs, and then obviously humans as well. Um, So we spent a lot of time and other groups as well looking at what happens in mice as sort of the most accessible uh, model system. And that's been a really great starting point because we've been able to go through and identify specific bacteria that induce these eggs to hatch. People have then tried to apply this in pigs, and in pigs that's been a little bit more difficult, where we don't know exactly which bacteria, but we can dissect up the gut and figure out exactly which region is important for inducing hatching. So if you take a pig's stomach, that's not suitable for inducing hatching. If you take the small intestine, that's not suitable. But if you take this narrow region of the large intestine, then suddenly you get hatching of these pig whipworm eggs, which is really cool. And then finally, we're trying to see if we can do some of those similar experiments in humans. Obviously, it's a little bit more difficult, but we've been trying different things uh, with human fecal samples and trying to see if we can get hatching in that way. And then part of my project will be to go back and do some metagenomic analysis of all of these different populations of bacteria uh, from mice, from pigs, from people, and see if there's commonalities that we can start to pull out and say, Uh, bacteria with these type of genes or this certain signature are important for the whipworm hatching. Do you have any knowledge so far, if we take the the pig example that you gave, is there something different about the bacterial species in that section of the gut compared to the stomach or other parts? Or is that still an open question? That's still an open question to, yeah, to be determined, but it is super interesting that it's quite narrow that several centimeters along the gut makes so much of a difference in terms of how many whipworm eggs you can induce to hatch. When you tested in the human feces, is the approach there to look at feces from people who have been infected or haven't, or is it to take feces from people understand the bacterial environment and then see which ones are good habitat for the eggs to hatch and and which ones aren't or or is it both maybe it's a little bit of both i'm quite fortunate in that i have a collaborator who has self-infected with whipworms really and so he is an incredible resource because obviously whipworms are hard to come by other than in endemic regions, but he is able to provide us with whipworm eggs. And then we're able to also try and use fecal samples from him. I've previously also tried to use some fecal samples uh, from babies because they have quite a reduced microbiome. So my thinking was if I could induce hatching using those samples, it's a very short list of bacteria that I have to sift through. So we've tested a few different things. 
That's really interesting. I, I have to ask more about this collaborator of yours that has self, self-infected with whipworm. Tell me about that. How did that come about? Yeah, so he studies the kind of the worm's effect on the immune system. So he studies Ascaris, which is another soil transmitted helminth, and he also studies Trichuris. And so he's one of the people who are more interested on the side of how can we use helminths as therapies going forward? So doing controlled infections and controlled trials on people where we give them these worms that are very good at modulating the immune system and saying, can we use them to target um, some certain autoimmune disorders, obviously starting with things like irritable bowel and Crohn's because that's the site of infection. Um, So he self-infected as part of his curiosity into this area of how we can use worms as therapy. Is that something that's commonly done within the parasitology field? Are there questions? Is that something that people... It, it seems like it's a drastic step, but it's probably something that people entertain when they have challenges getting access to samples. Do you know anyone else who does that, or is, or is this a relatively isolated incident? Have you ever considered it? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I would like to say off the bat, I personally haven't done it. <laughs> I haven't considered it. I have had several willing volunteers. I think, yeah, there's a certain type of person who goes into this research is kind of very comfortable with things that other people might find a little bit disgusting. So I think it sort of lends itself to that. I mean, it's an interesting kind of aside in general, a lot of discoveries in science have been made by people experimenting on themselves when they couldn't get ethical approval to experiment on anyone else, right? Whether that's the right way or wrong way, it's uh, (laughs) sometimes how it's done. Besides your work on NTDs and and whipworm, I know you have uh, interest in the microbiome more generally. What what other areas of the microbiome are you interested in besides the role that parasites play? I know you've also done work around microbiome organoids, and, and I saw some tweets with you doing all kinds of live science. I think you were slicing open some whipworms to show people what they looked like inside. What What other sorts of areas are you interested in? So for my master's, I was studying the microbiome and looking at the bacteria there. And there's a lot of novel species um, of bacteria in the gut that we've never characterized or understood before. And I was starting to do some of this characterization. And I was particularly interested in little bits of DNA that we call mobile elements or plasmids that bacteria can use to communicate with one another. And so they can share these little bits of DNA. And traditionally, they're kind of looked at as vectors for antimicrobial resistance. But they're also the starting point for thinking to the future of things like genetic engineering gut bacteria. Um, you want bits of DNA that the bacteria are willing to accept and able to actually express um, to take up whatever information you're trying to give them. So that's something probably several years in the future, but I'm very much looking forward to that. What's the current state of the art in terms of using using the human microbiome, whether it's fecal transplants or, or some of these ideas? I've, I've never heard of using helminths as a treatment, but it makes sense now that you've explained it to me. Is that, is, is there, are we making a lot of progress there? And is it something that you think we'll start to see an explosion of over the next 5, 10, 15 years? Or is it hard to say? 
it's hard to say. I think we would need another really good case for it. So obviously the last really good case for it was Clostridium difficile infections, where they were trialing antibiotic treatment against the fecal microbiota transplant. And the fecal microbiota transplant was just so effective. It was unethical to continue the trial in that scenario. And now that's a really good treatment for people with hospital-acquired Clostridium infections. So should we get another sort of lightning case like that, I think that would be great. As a more general treatment, I think there's still a lot of things we need to understand about yeah, what we're doing when we're transplanting different bacteria to different people. But I think it's definitely an area that's growing and is super interesting. That is really interesting. I wish I knew more about the microbiome science because it seems like an area that's exploding and And it's such a challenging research area as well, because you don't just have the genetics of the human, you have the genetics of the bacteria, you have the environment that the bacteria finds itself in based on what you eat. You have, you know, potentially things from your childhood that affect your microbiome all the way up to adulthood. Do do you find it challenging to have all this complexity in your work? Or is is it something that you all have just learned to embrace and, and understand that the you know, the human gut is a is a wild place and an ecosystem of its own. And, and that's just the reality of it. Yeah, no, definitely. Every time you sort of think, maybe I've nailed it down, and I've understood one aspect of it, something else comes in that could be a new or a confounding variable. But I think that's part of the excitement, is that maybe there won't be like a clear answer of, if you take this bacteria out, suddenly certain diseases are cured, but it's just another bit of life that we need to understand and that we know is very important for our health. And the more we understand it, the better health outcomes we will have. What has it been like doing your PhD in this area when you, I seem to recall from listening to you speak on another podcast that you maybe initially were interested in going into medicine, but ultimately found yourself in molecular biology and and now have found yourself in microbiome science and parasitology. What what has it been like kind of learning a new field like this over the last three or four years? Has has it been exciting, challenging, interesting combination of all the above? <laughs> yeah, combination of all of the above. I think it has definitely been a steep learning curve, but that definitely keeps me on my toes. And there's a lot of different things for me to dig into and remain curious about and to continue learning. I don't think I would have changed it for the world. Yeah, I think it's definitely all in all been a good experience. Um, And I think I definitely have come off better for it and have got a lot more skills than if I'd chosen something I was more comfortable with or more assured of. Do you have any um, ideas on on what you want to do after you finish the PhD? Are you interested in jumping... There's, I think, a huge value in jumping to different kind of adjacent areas of research because you can bring a new perspective. Are you you interested in continuing along the same research path, jumping into something different? I also know you do a ton of work around science communication and public engagement. Are you thinking about a career that combines all of the above or what? Yeah, I think it's, it's hard to imagine what the ideal job looks like, but I think I'm definitely someone who's interested in doing a lot of interdisciplinary things and someone who's, yeah, definitely interested in having different channels to follow and different things to do each day. I 
think there's a lot of value to be gained from collaborations um, in academia, in industry, um, in fields like science communication. And I think I would like to be able to keep this sort of more holistic approach to science. And I think any scientist should be happy to communicate what they do. And it just makes you better as a scientist, having to sit and think about how to communicate your ideas to other people means you sit and have a better understanding of it for yourself. So I definitely want to keep that going forward. If you're trying to convince others, or or maybe if people ask you whether they should be involved in science communication, or, or what the benefits are, do you do you typically explain it as it helps you at minimum, be a better scientist? Or do you think that it's also part of a larger role to communicate what it is that you do to the taxpayers or donors that fund the research or or the people that ultimately, you know, hopefully that it'll it'll help in some way, whether it's them personally or related? Is it kind of a combination of those things for you? How do you explain it to other PhD students who, um, or postdocs who might ask you, how do I get involved in something like this? Yeah, I think it's, and in a kind of, the basic sort of selfish way of thinking about it is yes, it will make me better at what I do. It'll make me a better scientist. And as you said, there is uh, some semblance of responsibility of explaining what you're doing to other people. Yes, especially if you work for a not-for-profit or for a government organization, it's good to let people know um, what they're funding and where that money is going. And then I also just think as a population or as the general public, uh, we should never stop learning about science. And you never know who is out there, who's ready, who has the curiosity, who just needs to hear the information to give them that new idea or to inspire them to go and do something different. And then even further going forward, I think citizen science projects are going to become even more important as we think about how we want to continue doing these massive large scale projects that need lots of data, lots of data points, lots of people. It will help you in designing and actually executing those sort of experiments if you're actually able to communicate to people uh, why they should be involved and passionate about science. Explain what you mean by citizen science for people who who haven't heard the term before. Is there is there an example that you think has done? Um, I have an example in mind. Um, is there an example that you think of that people have done a really good job with it? I think two of my favorite citizen science examples are, I can't remember the name of it, but there's one where you email in, they will send you a swab and you can swab anything you like. And they collect these swabs back and grow them and try and culture these bacteria to discover novel antimicrobial um, proteins and molecules that these bacteria from all over the world may be producing. Um, So that's one of my favorite ones for obvious reasons. Then another one that I really enjoyed is a weather study where they actually just have a portal where they have pictures of clouds and you can go and identify the clouds. And this helps them develop better automatic detection and classification of different kinds of cloud systems. That's very cool. There have been quite a few um, interesting ones that have popped up during COVID. I think when it was kicking off, a lot of people basically just thought, I have an idea and maybe I can help. And I think that's one of the amazing powers of this kind of science is that it it completely democratizes it, right? Anybody who has a good idea and a willingness to make a website can kind of, is this something you've thought about doing before or have you started a or participated in any citizen science projects? 
So I've participated in the swabbing one. Yeah, I'm not sure if I have an idea of that I want some sort of help or crowdsourced help with. But I think, yeah, it is a really good way to get people involved. Um, we have one in our lab. Um, it's not really citizen science so much as we go into um, high schools and the kids in the high school have been helping annotate the trichurus genome because we are one of the few groups that have spent a lot of time and money and energy sequencing it. But obviously manual curation and annotation takes a lot of time. Um, so we've done this in partnership with some A-level students where they get to learn a bit about bioinformatics um, and then they help us by annotating um, a genome that we need. That's perfect. It's such a it's a win-win, right? They get to learn something actually hands-on. Yeah. And they get to help. It's not just, uh, you know, it's not just kind of a model that they play around with. They actually have a play a hand. One of the, I don't know if I would call this citizen science, but I think it's related. Um are some of the patient social networks like patients like me health unlocked there's there's been some really amazing kind of grassroots efforts because they're basically social networks and support systems where patients can help one another and often very organically someone will have an idea or will even have an observation about themselves like i tried this and it really helped and some of them have even i think there was one in als on patients like me where they went on to run a clinical trial based off one of the observations on the group. But I, I do think it's such a powerful force. The other one I was interested if you'd heard of, I don't know if they do microbiome actually, but there's a group called Open Humans and people can submit any kind of data, but they've had a, they've had a uh, basically a microbiome. You can do your microbiome with one of the many companies that lets you submit a stool sample and people have basically uploaded their data into this system where essentially anyone can come along download the data and play around. Have you have you heard of that one or any others like it? No. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that one. Um, I have heard of some others, but they're a bit more curated where you have to go through a lot of screening to be a donor for their kind of microbiome biobanks because obviously they're more interested in sort of clinical outcomes. And I have heard of the one or some rumors of one of people wanting to do some pet microbiome sequencing. But I think we'll see more of that as people, again, yeah, have more ideas of how this data could be used. Yeah, that would, um, I imagine that would take off like wildfire if you let people test their pets and, and send it in. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about what it's like doing your PhD at the Sanger Institute. It's a, it's one of the premier sequencing institutes in the world. So there's a big sequencing institute in Boston called the Broad Institute, and the Sanger Institute is here in Cambridge. And, and I was just curious, I did my PhD there. So I have some kind of perspective of my own, but I was interested in yours of, you know, what it was like to be able to have access to all of that sequencing, DNA sequencing capacity and those sorts of things. Has it changed the way you've approached some of the research questions that you have or, or the way you, you do science or how do you, um, you know, do you like it there? Is it a good, is it a good place to, to do your work? No, I definitely think it's been an incredible opportunity, resource, and just system for supporting my PhD. I've done a lot of things that I don't think many other people have had the opportunity to do at other institutes, and it's kind of allowed me to pursue any questions that I had in my PhD kind of 
almost in a in a no holds bar way where if we've had exciting collaborations we've been free to pursue them which um, led me to spending some time in Denmark um, at a research institute there and at a university hospital there where I was able to sample some pigs to try and get these really crucial pig microbiota samples and I also had the opportunity to uh, see what work is like in a hospital environment there um, where people are doing all sorts of investigations. Um, I watched a few like colon biopsies, stuff that I've just never had the chance to do um, before, which is incredible. So yeah, I think it's been great. It's given me a really big picture outlook. When I look at my project, I think I've been able to kind of pursue all potential avenues without having to narrow in or focus down very early on on what would seem like the most effective route to a PhD, which I think is great, at least for me personally, because I have a lot of curiosity. And the point for me doing the PhD was to kind of expand my horizons as much as possible and to gain as much experience as possible. And I think I've achieved that. Yeah, absolutely. Of all the collaborations you've been a part of, which which has been the most interesting, exciting, unexpected from what you plan to do kind of starting off versus where, what you ended up doing? Because I know you can make a plan for your PhD at the beginning, but often spirals off in ways that you never expect. Yeah, I think I definitely have to say I don't think I plan to spend as much time or get as acquainted with pigs as I have over the last six months. I thought my project was very cut and dry where I had my mouse model and my human model and was just going to go from A to B. And then the pigs were kind of in the middle in between as a, yes, if I have time, I'll look at this. They've become an integral part um, of the story now. And that's been really exciting. And again, lots of new things to learn, but great. You mentioned it in the beginning and I missed it. I'm sorry, but what is the link with the pigs? Why? What do they bring to the, um, to the research study that you couldn't get? I understand with the humans so much is challenging, but what do the pigs bring that is challenging to do with mice? So they bring sort of an intermediate where we have some knowledge, but we don't have all of the knowledge. They're also important agriculturally. So Denmark is a massive pig farming country. Um, so that's why they study that model a lot there, because if you have infected pigs, that's obviously not good for the economy. Right. So it just gives a new angle for something that's relevant agriculturally and for human health. And then also um, you can use pig whipworm to infect humans, but the infection doesn't take. So the eggs go into people, they hatch, but the worms are not able to establish in a human colon. So again, it's sort of another interesting intermediate where there's some information there, but not all of the information is there. And we just want to know what it is. That's fascinating. So are the whipworm species between pigs and humans just ever so slightly different? And you don't know why they don't take, but Exactly. So it's kind of, we think of Muris, um, so the mouse whipworm, as being very energetic. You can do anything to it and it will hatch. Any sort of sample you throw at it, it's very happy. Uh, with the pig whipworms, any sample you throw at them, some of them they like, some of them they don't like. And with humans, it's very much like this locked box that we're trying to figure out what exactly is it that we can use to induce hatching. 
That's amazing. And it's really kind of a tool that you can use. It makes sense to me now by understanding why they don't take in humans or why they do take in pigs and which part in the pigs you can really start to unpick that puzzle as to what's going on. Yeah, no, definitely. So what are the next steps and and kind of impacts, assuming you are able to figure out some of the key um, pieces of the puzzle as to what bacteria are involved in successful or unsuccessful um, hatching colonization? Not sure if I'm getting the words right. What would you then be able to do with those findings? There's sort of two main prongs. Uh, One aspect is looking at the whipworm as a disease and the fact that if we understand these components of the basic biology, um, we have new ways to sort of design and target drugs, new therapeutics that we can design based off of understanding this. And obviously that's very important. There's still a lot of people who have this infection and often have it in a chronic way that would benefit from being able to be treated um, and especially when you think about anti-helminthics and starting to think of preventing a resistance crisis um, in helminths um, like we have in bacteria, um, it's important to always stay on top of new ways of treating these illnesses. Please go on. I was just going to ask about um, resistance because the question popped into my head as, as you were saying it that um, we hear about antimicrobial resistance, but I don't know anything about anti-helminthic resistance. The majority of helminths are able to be treated by anti-helminthic drugs. A lot of them work by paralyzing the worms so they're no longer able to grip onto the intestines and then they can be passed out of the body. But they're very first-line treatment and a lot of uh, helminth infections, you'll deworm people and clear them out, but then they'll go back to their surroundings and then get reinfected. And so you have to kind of continually do this treatment in a way where you, yeah, you just have to continually treat them because their environment is contaminated. So obviously, the more exposure the worms have to these treatments, obviously, they're going to develop resistance. And we're seeing that in some of the other helmets. Is that right? Which ones are there evidence of, of resistance in? What are the main ones besides whipworms? What else do you all study? So in our lab, in terms of human parasites, we uh, study schistosomes. And then we also work with people who study homonchus, which is a parasite that infects sheep. So again, something important agriculturally. And they're very interested in the resistance of the sheep parasites to one of the anti-helminthic drugs. Interesting. Do we know much about the worms that infect humans? Do they have um, resistance or presumably they do. Yes, so uh, schistosomiasis is uh, not a soil helminth. It is a different type of worm, but in people who are infected with that, they are starting to see some resistance to the typical drugs that they use to treat it. That's worrying. It seems like it's a constant arms race, isn't it? Although they probably don't evolve as quickly as bacteria, but nonetheless, we're all evolving constantly, right? Yeah, exactly. And when you think that the majority of um, helminths have a multi-stage life cycle that happens in different hosts and different places in the environment. So a lot of them will have like a water stage, an intermediate vector stage, and then get into the human. And throughout all of these stages, they're still somehow evolving at a quick enough rate to keep up with us developing new treatments. It's actually pretty incredible. (laughs) It is. Is there any evidence of humans that are 
I don't know if immune is the right word, but for whatever reason, they're resistant to infection from from these parasites. You know, whether it's a genetic microbiome or, or other marker that makes it really difficult for them to to colonize certain people's um, gut. Is there any evidence of that? I don't know of any evidence in humans of people being resistant to different parasites, but people are now trying to start doing some studies in mice where they found that if they infect mice with parasites and then try to reinfect the mice with parasites, the worms have actually altered either the immune system or the microbiome of these mice where new worms aren't able to colonize. So it's part of their like adaptation strategy where they don't want a host to be overburdened with parasites. So they're doing some sort of modulation in that way. But it's still very early days with those type of studies. That's fascinating. It's, it seems like uh, there's no shortage of research questions to ask. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. So I'm just conscious of, of your time here. I was wondering if closing out, we could just explore a little bit of where you're taking the research from here. We've covered the whipworm work quite a bit. Are there other areas where you're delving into in the next, um, I know you've got probably a year or so left in your PhD, and then you'll be you'll be on to the next thing after that. What's um, What's on the horizon for you? I think, obviously, the main thing, finishing the PhD. I think after that, I'm sort of very excited to find the next thing that I'm passionate about and happy to join in on. Yeah, I think I would like to continue learning and maybe try something new again. So yeah, I'm keeping my options very much open. Great. So if people want to follow you, learn more about microbiome, whipworms, NTDs, your Twitter is M. Is that right? T-A-P-O-K-A-M. Anywhere else people can follow you, website? Anything like that? Nope. I'm mostly on Twitter. Um, also, if you do LinkedIn and then just my full name, Topoka Team Kundawire, you can find my LinkedIn. Thanks so much for taking the time. I learned more than I ever imagined I would about NTDs and whipworms. So thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. 